Hi, everyone. Uh, it's Derek. Um, so this is a, a fairly special and unusual one. Uh, the man certainly needs no introduction. Uh, and I'm not sure if I can introduce this podcast and do it justice. So I'm just going to play it. All right. So you lucked out on this one. You don't have to listen to me at the beginning. So for better or for worse, here's my evil chat with Dan Paff. All right. All right. So, hey, how are you? How you doing? Yeah, all right. <laughs> I'm laughing because we were just, Dan just asked me how I got COVID. I'm just recovering from COVID. And I, I said, yeah, I went to a punk rock festival and, and uh, came back with COVID. But I, I'm double vaccinated and everybody that had to go to this festival had to be vaccinated. And, you, and it wasn't just like you had to show paper proof. You had to have it like electronic proof. And it was, they did a pretty good job. But of course, it's a festival, right? You get in there. Anyway, so you get in there and it's, it's a free for all. So, but, uh, but not the guy I went with, he, he didn't get it. So I don't know. I may have gotten it before, but I'm pretty sure I got it there. Mm. How are you? Yeah. Doing all right. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Adjusting uh, to the world of remote consulting. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I haven't yeah. been on an airplane since uh, February, 2020. Really? Wow, that's a big change for you, man. Holy cow. Yeah, the last time I haven't flown was uh, probably 1974. <laughs> oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, I um, uh, Oh, I, which I just got off the phone with Taylor, Taylor Bateman. I, you, did you talk to him last night? Yeah, he's uh, in our mentorship group. Uh, okay, cool, cool. Yeah, I know we, we, uh, we had a great time. He sounds like he's doing good work out there in Boise uh yeah so yeah i same here i mean I, I don't do a lot of that but it's you know moving in that direction i got a new job did i tell you about that no oh yeah so i'm you're not going to believe this so i'm working and pardon uh pardon to all those who heard this in the last podcast but i'll, I'll keep it brief but so i'm working for a guy named james coxworth who is, was a hammer thrower in the ncaa in his day um uh, done well and wants to give back. So he started a club called Hammerman uh, out in Aurora, west of here. And uh, it's, you know, it's, he, he's, I, I basically get paid to coach Hammer to disadvantage kids is what it is. Nice. So yeah, the guy, he's, he's got a big vision, big vision guy. You know, he's got, uh, you, you would, I think you'd be impressed with the facility. You'd really be impressed with what he's putting together, but uh, he's got, he's got a, putting together a throws arena. Um, not sure. I mean, he's got architect drawings, so we're at that stage. Right. But so something's going in there. I'm not sure what the timelines will be, but so, yeah, it's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. I'm I'm out there like four nights a week coaching. It's a bit of a bit of a drive, but I don't mind. So, well, so let's get to the topic for today. <laughs> so um i'm gonna show you something so dan and i are talking over zoom we can see each other so i just thought i would show you this oh have you ever seen my tattoo i i, I don't think you have i don't think i've actually seen you since i got this okay so do you, can you read that <clears throat> yeah i've okay. only got one eye but i can read it oh really <laughs> what do you mean you only got one eye 
Well, I, I need a second surgery on my right eye. So I'm oh kind of one-eyed. That's my... It's You're, called old age. Eric. Yeah, well, I was just going to say I'm looking at my future. But anyways, okay, so it says no more, right? So I got that tattoo when I hit 20 years of sobriety, okay? Not drinking. <laughs> See this folder? So I'm showing Dan a, a folder that I've had. What does it say? Can you read that right at the top? It says no, no more. It's, it's too small. Okay, that says <laughs> no more. This is my no more folder, okay? I started this folder. I stopped it after a few years, but I started this folder October 5th, 1998, which was the last day I had a drink. And in this folder is exclusively emails from you. So what do you think is in there? 300 emails, maybe <clears throat> printed off. Yeah, easily. Yeah. Yeah. So, and I, I, I thought, you know, I would start, I would start with that because you and I have a bit of a weird relationship. It's not, I wouldn't start a weird relationship, but it's probably not, it's not the relationship most people probably think that we have because I mean, you are one of my mentors. Of course, we have done a lot of, well, I don't know how much of a, I would, I don't know how much over email and that we've done a lot of technical talk, but really the bulk of our communication in our, since we've known each other has been about sobriety, staying sober, trying to live a, a sane life. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. And I thought it would be a great podcast just for you and I to talk about that primarily, mostly your journey than mine. Um, I, have you ever talked about this publicly, like in, in this, like as, as a topic? Uh, you know, off, off the record for right. sure, but not, not in a public forum. No. Oh yeah. The, the fact that you're a recovering alcoholic, is like the worst kept secret in track, right? Like, I mean, everybody knows that, right. But you've never really told your story. And when you told your professional story at our conference a couple of years ago, Dude, you had that room, like you had, it, they were mesmerized. They were like, <laughs> I remember, I remember tweeting some stew. I think it was, I said, I said, God damn, he's got this room just fixated. Like they're just telling your story. So anyways, I thought almost as a public service to, you know, coaches out there that might be in the same boat that you and I used to be in or are in the same boat we're in now. I thought maybe, you know, I have no plan for this. I have no real, you know, I, I didn't even make any notes or anything. I just wanted to tell the story, how it's just see where it goes. So for me, the story starts when, and it's funny, I was just telling, I mean, for an hour, I just talked about this with Taylor Bateman, not about the drinking, but about the, about meeting you. And when I was coaching Shane Nemi, who was an athlete I coached who, won a bronze medal to world juniors and you were recruiting them when you were at Texas. Yeah. And do you remember, do you remember when you left me the, the phone message and we went back and forth, we went back and forth and left phone message. And this is, this is old school, right? This is like 95, nine, no, it, this would have been 96. Um, 44, 
messages. I think we left before we finally connected. We just kept miss, missing each other. It got actually quite humorous, but comedic. But anyways, and then I ended up making some trips down to Texas. It, it never worked out with Shane. Um, I started making some some um, trips down there starting the fall of 96. And I remember one day we were driving to the track in your car and I, and I was struggling. I hadn't quit then. And I was, I mean, that's when I was at my, you know, Zenith of like fucked upness. Right. Like, and <clears throat> I remember you, I, I don't know what triggered it, but you just started talking about your history. And I did not know, like I, I had no clue because I was not in, I mean, as a young coach up in, small town in Canada. I didn't know. I, I knew who you were. I knew that you coached uh, Donovan. So, and then over that week, we started talking a little bit about it. And that now I ultimately didn't get sober then. <laughs> Took two more years, but I, that's, I first got into the program through you. You're the guy that convinced me to do it. So, so with starting there, where do we go from here? Where, where, when, when did you start? first start drink start drinking well i grew up in uh rural ohio uh, my father's side of the family was german so um typical german family we always had beer at the table for lunch and dinner so it was pretty common to have a glass of beer with dinner kind of like french culture wine with meals right. and whatnot right and then you know, peer rebellion. I grew up in the 60s, so dad always had a lot of booze in a refrigerator on the porch and a lot of booze in cabinets and whatnot. So and guys would come over and we'd sneak booze out to the barn and get hammered and whatnot. So it started pretty young, probably age 12, 13. Yeah, that's about when it, that's when it started with me. Yeah, with 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 me, it was uh, my my buddies were Italian, not German. So it was raiding the uh, the homemade wine casks and drinking it, sucking it out of a tube. <laughs> well, we were a little classier than that. My dad, oh uh, sure, <laughs> he bought German brewer, so he was a Blatz beer drinker. And then, um, of course, we had all the cognacs and brandies, you know, the right. German lifestyle. So right. we were kind of upper class rebellion drunks. Right, right, right. When did you first know you had a problem? Um, well, I, I would say you get glimpses or tunnels of a problem, you know, like probably through high school, I swore off drinking maybe a thousand times, you know, yeah. you're puking yeah. in an alley and yeah, never doing you know, that again, wake, wake up the next morning, you don't know whose house you're in or yeah. whatever, you yeah. know, like, never again, never again, that, that's it. And, yeah. um, but I calculated well, it out once. I think I did that something like, you know, like 4,000 times. <laughs> I, I think I got you there. Oh, I'm sure uh, you do. Probably my biggest wake up call was the year I got sober in 1989. The wife, <clears throat> she had kind of had enough and she was packing up and her and the kids are going to move back to Ohio. And that was kind of like the wake up calls like, oh, shit, this is serious. Mm -hmm. And you were how old? Uh, what was I then? Uh, 89, 35. Yeah. So I quit when I was 33. Um, do you find, you know, it's interesting because I find that with a lot of the people I've met, um, 
drinking. They either quit around then, probably because I think we were so bad, or they get to the 50s. And it's somewhere in there that they that where things really go to shit. And they've usually lost at least a marriage or, you know, whatever. They've got racked up DUIs. But I, I don't maybe I'm wrong. I just seem to think that seems to be it's like kind of polarized that way. It's like because, you know, that, so so you so you stopped at what you said, 35. Yeah. And and where you worked throughout that period like where well i started as a high school volunteer coach at my old high school in the, in the early 70s so i was coaching uh, football offensive line and wrestling helping the wrestling coach and then most of my work was with track and field because the school there had one coach and you know he couldn't cover all the events so i covered all the jumps and throws and then I went to university, kind of dodging the draft. That was the Vietnam War era. And I've, I've, my counselor, my advisor said, hey, there, there's a huge shortage on male science teachers. So you've got all these minors in science. Why don't you get a science teaching certificate? I said, well, keep me out of the war. He said, sure, it will, because they got this emergency you know, legislation. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm in. So... <laughs> I uh, got a degree in, in science education, and I taught at a rival high school, and I taught all the sciences, coach football and wrestling and intramurals and track, and I was the athletic trainer and the weight room coordinator, because back then they didn't have those mm-hmm. specialties, so that was the start. Uh, heard Coach Telez, uh, from he was at UCLA at the time, speak at a couple clinics, so I started stalking him. And when he moved to Houston, uh, I moved there sight unseen, didn't know a soul, uh, to kind of work under him for a couple of years. So I had a two-year stint at the University of Houston. My first paid job was Wichita State in Kansas. Hmm. That lasted a year. Finances blew up on that gig. Uh, went to UTEP, uh, Texas El Paso, for a couple of years. And that's where I kind of started my international coaching career mm-hmm. and search and journey. Uh, from there, I went to LSU for 11 years, and that's where I got sober. And oh, it's kind you, of you got sober in at LSU. Oh, yeah. I oh, okay. Probably one of the hardest states in the in the country to get sober. And in probably w- pro- without a question, the hardest crew to get sober. <laughs> I know yeah, because in Louisiana, they have a festival every weekend, a strawberry festival, right. a pumpkin festival, a jazz festival, right. Oktoberfest or whatever. Yeah, it's heavily Catholic. So you got all the Catholic holidays. So it's just that culture is that culture. So my sponsor said, he goes, getting sober is like really hard. Getting sober in New Orleans, Baton Rouge is like extra hard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No kidding. Okay. Well, there's some pretty legendary sto- stories. So there was, there was you, McGinnis, and Seagrave, right? And Sam Seams, Billy uh, Maxwell. Okay. It, okay. it was an all-star cast. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, I, uh, you know, my last, my last, you know what? It's funny because McGinnis, who in a lot of ways is one of my heroes. Right. And I, I mean, I know he's, he's in, he's in shit these days, but he, uh, uh, he gave me my first national coaching, national team coaching assignment, which 
for as a senior, I'd been on a bunch of juniors, but the first one was 1998 Commonwealth Games, which is <laughs> where I stopped drinking. And, and I'd been drinking like uh, I think uh, that year I went to uh, the Reno Vault Summit. I think it was the first or second year they had it there. And I remember I was drinking at the bar the, the day I got there by myself. I turn around and Andy's standing there and he just gets this big grin on his face. He goes, oh, this is going to be a good weekend. And I didn't even know him. I, he just, you know, it's that thing, right? Like, I don't know if you have it, but I have it. Like I can walk into a room, especially when I was drinking. And it's like you got this radar, like, you know, exactly who you want to hang out with. And who's going to, you know, you know what I mean? It was like one of those. So him and I went out, did the town. We talked about you quite a bit that night, if I remember, because I didn't know you. And I was trying to pick his brain, getting to uh, to to get to know you or to get to know more about you and how you coached in that. And anyways, and so we uh, but he was telling me some crazy fucking stories, like twenty three thousand dollar phone bills. <laughs> Is that true? Yeah. Uh, I think one of my earliest shocks there, you know, when we got to LSU, it was ground zero. And I don't think the women had even had a qualifier to nationals, let alone a team. And we started winning championships. We won, I think ultimately we won 19 national titles with the men and women's program. And one of the first wins was at Oklahoma City as indoor nationals. And Sam was kind of our ops director and kind of controlled budget and travel money and all that. And after we won, we were at a Marriott hotel, I think it was, and coaches were coming by congratulating us. We were buying beers and whatnot. And Sam got up uh, towards the end. He had to go to the restroom. And so the, the host handed me the bill and it was like $4,000 bar bill. And I was like, what? Oh, <laughs> Sam came back. I said, "How are you going to cover this?" He goes, "We got it. We got it." <laughs> wow, wow, yeah, good. yeah. Those are different days, yeah, for sure. I think he also told me, I, I maybe it was Sam. It was some, it was some part of one. Well, it was, I'm sure it wasn't official. It was unofficially one guy's job to keep the the coaches, the fridge in the coaches' room stocked, and like, yeah. Anyways, the, <laughs> I mean, those are all cool, cool stories, but you know like like how like how bad did it get and how did you get sober like what was the you know it was aa right like you did you yeah. did you go on your own or did somebody convince you to go because you're the one that convinced me to go so well, like i said my, my wife uh you know was one step out the door and that was kind of the wake up call and that kind of precipitated a kind of a health crash and so one of the stops on the medical like what's wrong with me whatnot was uh with a psychiatrist that specialized in addictions mm. and you know in a semi-sober state i took a couple of surveys and then he just went over and i'm not stupid he's like well, you're 20 out of 20 on this one and you're 32 out of 35 on this one. Like maybe you have a problem. I was like, well, you know, armed with that. Yeah, probably. And if you talk to my wife, she definitely thinks it's a problem. And if you talk to some of my coworkers, athletes, I coach, it's probably a problem. So 
that was kind of the, the realization. And so he hooked me up with a guy that worked at a hospital there that it, they had an addiction clinic and uh, he was a pretty famous golfer who kind of drank himself, you know, out of the sport. And he was a perfect sponsor because I went in with all this rationalization and denial and minimalization and all that. And he just mm-hmm. bullshit, bullshit, bullshit. Mm-hmm. And then he kind of shared the story, his story. And I was like, wow, you know, I'm not alone in this. And, uh, right. you know, I'm a patterns guy. And I was like, okay, I see this pattern. So he handed me the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous and said, hey, we're going to meet next week. I want you to read this. And I was like, well, you know, I'm throwing up. My heart rate's about 220. I don't know how much reading I can get done. He goes, well, your life depends on it. So read it. Yeah. yeah. So I read it and, you know, I saw my story about every chapter and I was like, shit, there's, you know, cause yeah. I kind of thought AA I'd had experience with AA with other people in the program. And I thought it was just a bunch of yahoos getting together in a prayer meeting. I, I had no idea what it, it, it encompassed. And so he took me to my first AA meeting and it, it was a wild meeting. There, there were bikers, there were bankers, there were politicians. Mm. It was one of these kind of confidential meetings where people understood, like, you don't say who's here or whatever. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, I was shocked who I saw in the room. And what was even more shocking was two of the renowned coaches in the area were in that room. And I was like, wow. Wow. Yeah. 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 Did you like, where was that? Was it in like, that, downtown? That was in ba- that like was down- in Baton Rouge. Okay. It was, uh, it was actually my, my kids in Louisiana, the schooling so poor, we put our kids in private schools. So it was actually at a, a, a religious school that our kids attended. And I was right. kind in of the worried basic, church coming in the back or... door. I didn't yeah. want my kids to uh, see me going into it. Oh my gosh. Well, I got sober in Kamloops and I remember the exact same thing. I grew up around my grandparents and my grandparents, my grandparents get, to, I don't know if I ever told you this. My grandparents met Bill W. Wow. Okay. So they were like, they, they got sober in the early fifties. And so I grew up around AA. Like, I mean, it was everywhere in their house. Like it was, you know, they were hardcore, you know, went to the conventions and had all the books. And I remember my grandmother pulling out a book once and it was, uh, I, I think I actually have it. I think what she, yeah, I do. It's on my shelf, on my bookshelf somewhere, but she opens up. Um, it's not the big book. It's, it, it's another book anyways. And you, op- you open it up and there's an old black and white photo of one of, it's like the second or third AA convention in St. Louis or something like that. And she points and she goes, that's your grandpa and I right there. You couldn't really see him, but she was pointing in the crowd and that's where we were sitting. Right. So I kind of grew up around it, but it was uh, and I swore there's no way like there's just no way I'm going for the same reasons. Right. And then when I when I you know, when when I hit that bottom after uh after Kuala Lumpur I uh you know, and I had tried to quit for the two years you you had walked me through it being in and out of the program for two years before I quit. And, uh, but trying to walk into that meeting in, in Kamloops, I mean, it's a small town, right? Like for sure. I was going to know somebody in there. I walked in there. First fucking guy I saw was an elementary school teacher and coach who I saw, I knew 
his name was Joe Baxter. I don't think he's around anymore, so I can say his name, but he, uh, and, uh, and he just took one look at me. It's like, and then I, I got about three quarters of the way through that meeting and I booked out of there and he actually came running down the street after me and he, and he convinced me to, to come back. Anyways, that's, that's how I started. But did you, did you like, was the, like, did you relapse in and out or did you basically get it right off the get go? I was pretty blessed. Like, like I said, I had a good sponsor and, you know, growing up on a farm and a dad that ran a construction company, I always valued having a team around you. I never wanted to depend on one person because like in construction, if the foreman goes down, you can't stop the job. So I had my main sponsor and then I got another sponsor that was my age because my original sponsor was a bit older and then I made some friends in the program and I was like, okay, I want a lot of people around me. And then my counselor, uh, I, I got deep into CBT therapy, trying to figure out mm. what I need to get rid of in the suitcase that was causing her tripping a lot of this stuff. That had to be new back then. Oh, like, that had totally to be new. Yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 Okay. And, and so I just built a team and I had a great team around me and uh, a lot of those team members are still in my call list and we talk regularly you know i call them accountability partners right right do you, do you used to go to meetings yeah yeah do you really eh? wow i i haven't been to one in quite a while but i but over the you know i've had a few coaches come through my life that and friends a neighbor in the last place i lived it came you know and i and then i would go back and i would go to a handful of meetings with them and but i haven't been to one since i've been to chicago i should probably think about it at some point but but um so so you act so then so then so then what happened <laughs> so you're sober hey i got i got a question for you before i uh before we go there like was your dad an alcoholic like is that yeah. like was, was did it run through your family oh, hold on yeah oh, I my wife's pulling up, so the dogs yeah. are going nuts. Yeah, no worries. All good. Hey! Can... Shit. What's your dog's name? Well, we, we have our son's dog. It's a lab called Shadow, and then my wife has a dachshund, so... Ah, okay. That's they nice. wind each other up when there's yeah. a delivery man or right. somebody comes home or whatever. Right. So, yeah, so alcoholism has been on both sides of the family for generations kind of a generational curse but it skipped both of my grandparents neither my grandmother grandfather on either side were alcoholics wow. but my mom and dad were flaming alcoholics yeah, right. and my dad was primarily a weekend alcoholic like mm. during the week a couple beers after work or whatever maybe a cognac to fall asleep but on the weekend he got hammered yeah yeah, so yeah. that's how I started out. I was a weekend alcoholic. Like I'd mm. work my ass off. And then on the weekend, I'd just pound it. Yeah, I was, I was not like that. I mean, I was like anytime, anytime. I mean, I, I say this all whenever I'm talking about this with people, I say this, you know, I, there's probably five times in my life where I had a drink and didn't get completely shit faced. Did not drink until there was either no way to get more booze or no way to get more money to get more booze. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and those five times, that's exactly what happened. 
right? You know what I mean? There was just no other way. Well, uh, I, I never understood how somebody could go to dinner and have a glass of wine and go home. I was totally, like, totally. what's the use? Like, yeah. yeah. Why? <laughs> <laughs> I know. I know. It's if one's good, 30 will be just 30 times better. Why would you not do that? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, my it skipped my mom. It skipped my mom, but it didn't skip anybody else in my family. Like I said, my grandparents were famous and they stayed sober till the day they died. Right. It was the uh, a was very effective for them. Uh, my dad never got sober and uh, he left when I was three months old because of it. Like he, you know, my mom was like, okay, this is enough. They'd only been married like a, a year. He had three months of me. <laughs> I can't shut up now. I can only imagine what I was like as a baby, but and uh, that was enough. He was like, OK, I'm uh, you know, my mom just sort of said, uh, look, I don't want anything. Just just go, just go and don't show up until he's an adult and we'll call it even. And that's what he did. And then when I met him uh, later, I then I found out, you know, well, I knew I had family. So then I got to know a great half brother and sister that are younger. And I, and I got to know an older half sister, believe it or not. So my, my dad had been around and then uh, he eventually drank himself to death. Like he eventually ended up on skid row in Prince George. Um, and I got a call one day. This is when I was, this is when Gary and Dylan were at their sort of their Zenith of me coaching them. Right. When they were rocking, I don't think Gary had, I think it was the, it was the year Gary was training for the eight his first year the eight the only year he ever trained that first year he trained for the eight with me it was in the middle of the winter it was in january i get this phone call i was over at dylan's house and there was me him gary and judy his mom and i get this phone call. i don't know how the hell they reached me there you know back in the day right people could track you down right because you didn't have cell phones right anyway i get this phone call from his wife and she's like he's he's going you better get up here and i didn't even know i hadn't heard from him in years so i go up there and yeah, it took him. He had basically he was like all of his organs had shrunk. He was comatose. He didn't I don't think he could hear anybody. I stayed there throughout the weekend, but then he just they thought he was going to go. He didn't. He and then he, I came back to Candles. He died the next morning, but um, he never got sober. And he was just uh, it was really. Yeah, it was. You know, I, I didn't know, him, but it was. Uh, yeah, that was uh, that was a big you know, wake up call. And, but I'd been sober a few years and I never drank, even I was drinking when I first met him. Cause I was like, I was like 18. I was living with Kevin Tyler. When I first met him, he was, you know, I was Kevin Tyler and I were sharing an apartment in, uh, in Vancouver. And he just showed up one day. He was, uh, into forced into rehab by his job and had to come down to Vancouver. But anyways, so, and then, but I never drank around, was, you know, but I, uh, yeah, but I got the bug from him, man. I mean, <laughs> Not only did I get the bug for in regards to loving it, I got the bug in terms of tolerance. My tolerance for booze was, it was off the charts. Like it was just, you know, it was, uh, and, and I don't say that in any sort of, uh, <laughs> certainly don't say it in a boastful way, but because it really, like, I know I did damage, right? I know I did brain damage for sure. But uh, because just the sheer volume that I would put through me was just crazy. Were you like that? Did you? Yeah. I mean, I, German I, blood, you must. Yeah. I mean, growing up, you know, having beer with meals and whatnot, and then the rebellion years, you know, pretty good tolerance. But 
I, I think I ran out of enzymes at the end, you know, like skid row drunks don't start out getting smashed on half a bottle in a brown bag. You know, right. they, they right. decline to that. So yeah. I think at my peak, I could probably do 10 or 12 beers and a couple cocktails and a couple glasses of cognac and, you know, drive home. Wasn't mm -hmm. smart, but no, no, same. Yeah. yeah. But you did it. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one, one, uh, one crazy little piece of trivia and then I'll let you go on. I've been talking too much already anyways, but, uh, you know, I, so I, so I got sober. I think my, I call my sober date, October 5th. I'm really not sure because I don't remember coming back from Asia. Uh, that was pre nine 11, right. When you could, you know, you could go through custom shit faced and high, I was high on on over oh, i bought you, you could buy all kinds of crazy stuff over the counter in uh in thailand which is where i the last stop on that tour but anyways so i came back and and um I, you know i call it october 5th but i really don't you know uh I, I mean i was pretty fucked up right like i mean i sat there in my in my apartment for five days emailing you <laughs> do you remember that that's all i did i didn't leave it i didn't i didn't and I, the sixth day or the night of the fifth day, I went back to AA and I've been sober since, but, um, I forgot where I was going there with, with that, but yeah, I, uh, yeah, I lost track there, but anyway, so yeah, no, I was just, yeah, it wasn't good. It wasn't a good time. <laughs> no, but, bottoms are dark places for sure. Yeah. 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 So then, so then once you got sober, what, like, then what had to happen? Everything was rosy after that? Everything was good? No, no uh, first couple of years were, were super rough. And like I said, you know, by the grace of God, I had great accountability people around me. But first couple of years, I couldn't go to a restaurant that sold booze. And getting on an airplane was like white knuckle time. That car come oh. down the aisle and I was like, yeah. oh, because you just culture, you don't realize how tied the culture is. Like our coaching staff, we have recruiting evenings. So you get hammered while you're making the calls. You're on a trip, you'd get hammered on the way back or in the evening or whatnot. And you'd go do clinics or, you know, I was working a lot with Victor Lopez in the Caribbean with coaching education. And you go on these two-week coaches courses and just get smashed every yeah. night. You don't start realizing the culture that you're in, you know, we can't watch a football game, have 10 beers, you, mm -hmm. you know, it's just, well, especially coaching culture. I mean, yeah. I, I mean, imagine being on, you know, at that time when I was getting sober, I started, you know, I, I was on, I mean, I was on at least one national team for Canada every year. I was going to world champs. I was going to world juniors. Uh, I, I was on the 2008 Olympic team, but then I resigned. So but I mean, those are, that's what they are. Right. And so that's actually an interesting question. Like, did you, like, how did you manage that? Like, did you feel like you're a bit of an outcast? Because for me, I ended up developing this reputation on those teams. Like I was very useful to them because I was like you, I was a generalist in coaching. So they could put me on those teams and I could, if they had one, you know, it's Canada. So they wouldn't have like six pole vaulters, three men, three women, they'd have one. So I could handle that and I could do the hammer thrower that made the team. And I was a utility guy, right? I was, you know, jack of all trades, right? But I also developed a reputation of being a bit of an outcast, being a bit of a dick. And I think a lot of that comes from 
the fact that I wasn't socializing in that way with, with a lot of the team staff, not that they were all drunks or anything, but that's what they did. Right. And I just wouldn't do it. I would just, I would just take off and do my own thing. Right. And in a team environment that doesn't, that doesn't sit well a lot of times. So what, so like the, like, did you go through that? Yeah, I would. Yeah, my sponsor prepped me pretty well for that. I, you know, I'd probably say 70% of people I thought were close friends or colleagues disappeared. Wow. What do you mean disappeared? Like, oh, just, yeah, yeah. Just disassociated with you. Yeah. 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 And, um, you know, the, re the remaining 30%, you know, straight up and forward. And, you know, they, a lot of them became supporters or accountability partners. Right. Um, right. Well, you notice then, when, you notice when, when we were in Britain, right? Like you and I ran those two centers, you notice they always roomed us together. Yeah. Remember? Yeah. They always, we were, the, we were roommates at the Olympics. We were roommates in Daegu. We were roommates fucking any trip that you and I were both on. We were always room together that had to be why either that or they hated both of us like everybody <laughs> one of those two probably a double barrel approach yeah, yeah. And, and then i just got better like you know i would go to key social meetings that were imperative for the process and just you know club soda with lime or whatnot and you know leave early and you know when things started getting crazy that was my exit call and so I just learned how to surf social situations and environments. Mm. But that, like I said, that took a few years to get the confidence and the ability and the, and the strategies. Like, how do yeah. you cope in a culture that's, you know, alcohol driven? Yeah. And it is. Yeah. There's no doubt. There's no question. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, I mean, it's better now. I, I don't know. Is it better now? I mean, I've just been so out of it for so long that I, maybe I just don't realize it, but well, I, I work. I, I work in a lot of sports around the world. A lot of I'm inside a lot of teams as an auditor or a gatekeeper, or an advisor, and whatnot. And performance staff, whether it's coaches or medical staff or strength staff, you know, famous for self medicating. You know, mm -hmm. like amphetamines or energy drinks or whatever to get mm -hmm. fired up, coffee, and then you know, barbiturates or marijuana or alcohol to wind down. So right. it's it's just part of a self-medicating culture, I think. So what did you like? So then you, so you quit drinking, you got to manage all this bullshit, right? Like you got to, you know, you're, you're not, that's, I think that's a big misconception with people that either haven't gone through that process or they, or they don't have the problem. They think, well, as soon as you stop drinking, like, okay, everything's fine. Right. <laughs> And like it's it is in the fact that you're not drinking anymore. But I remember, I mean, there's some key lines that I will never forget that you put in some of these emails, right? And one of them was that um, you know, that's when you know, that's when it it you know that's that's when it starts, right? Like, you know, just because you're sober doesn't mean just because you stop drinking doesn't mean that the work's over. Yeah. It's, it's actually just starting. Right. And that's, and that was really, you know, um, people, people that don't, um, 
you know, that haven't been through that, I think that's, that's a big misconception that they have. They think, Oh yeah, well, that's fine. Okay. So you stop drinking and, but then you don't re- you know, you got to, rem- you don't realize, Oh, I remember another one you had is you said, and this was totally true with me. You said booze was a very useful tool for me for the longest time. Right. Like the, there's a reason why we drank, right. Like, you know, I couldn't cope in social situations or in anything, you know, with, with life in general. And I mean, what better fix than to have a few beers, right? Like, or, or a bottle of wine, right? I just, that's in those emails sitting next to me. And I remember that and I go, oh my God, it's like, you know, it was one of millions of little moments where I was like, fuck, this guy knows, knows me better than I know me. Like, that's exactly me, Right. So what do you think about that? Yeah, well, uh, we're just starting, you know, like one one of the tenets of 12-step programs is to make amends because guilt and shame Mm. are just eating your lunch. And those are big triggers for relapse and what have you. And, um, you know, I'm 32 years sober, still making amends to people, you know, like, Mm some people I totally forgot about and somehow we reconnect and I'm like, Oh my God, I did this, this, and this, you know, and I got to go to them. So that's just a never ending journey. And then, mm-hmm. like I said, you know, I, I, I found it really important to find out what are the triggers that trip me into this desire to abuse. And then how do you work on those triggers, you know, with CBT experts or counseling or social workers or people in your network, or your sponsor, like, how, how do you identify those triggers and how do you de-arm those triggers? Yeah. So for me, the work's never done. And, you know, yeah. it's it's important to stay vigilant because yeah. the roads we took to get into the bottom are well paved. And it's yeah, real yeah. easy to get back on those roads and walk them again. So easy. So easy. I remember also, this is just... This- this is funny because now a lot of this is so much of these. I should have gone through these. E- I'm glad, maybe in a way, I'm glad I didn't. But I should have gone through these emails before we, we started this. But I remember another one you sent me was on that topic. You said, you know, like you were trying to school me on this. What you just said, right? That you got to be, you know, look, you gotta, you gotta be looking ahead. You gotta be, you gotta know what sets you off, and you gotta know what you know, like like how, how to, how to deal with that before you, you know, before you end up in the seat in your back of the bar drinking, right. And you said to me, and this would be interesting because you work with a, you primarily work with a lot of SNC and sport performance professionals these days. Right. And I remember you telling me there was the guy that ran the weight room at, uh, I probably shouldn't even say it, but at wherever you were at the time, let's say, right. And this guy just drove you batshit crazy, like in terms of, uh, you know, just could send you up the wall. And so you, you said, anytime I got to go deal with this guy, I need to sit down. I need to pull out the, the book or whatever it was. You said, you said, I got to go through, I got to, you know, I got to meditate. I got to do something before I go see this guy, because if I don't, that's it. I'm, 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 I'm 50, 50 there. Right. You know what I mean? Like, so yeah. Yeah. For me, it was, you know, it's funny. This this is another, I think misconception a lot of people have about alcoholics and drinking. Well, I think it's different for all alcoholics, but they think for all of us, it's like the biggest threat for you to, 
for you to relapse is when things are going shitty. Right. Mm -hmm. But that's not the way it was with me. It was, I, always relapse and i relapsed a lot of times before i actually quit like i said there was a two year well i mean my whole life i was relapsing but you know when i had it when i met you and started a focused effort on trying to quit there was two there was two years there where i was off and on i think the longest i had was maybe three months and it, it, i never went back drinking when things were bad it was always when things were good it was like i an athlete would have a huge performance and or we'd have a fucking rock and workout and I'd be driving home and I'd be just the music be playing a sunny day. I'm feeling great. I feel fucking so good. Why? I would just turn. I would just turn the turn the club van <laughs> and drive <laughs> and drive to the drive to the bar. And that was it. Then I'd be done again. It took me a long time to figure that out. I think that's why it's so critical to know your triggers. Yeah. And, and, and to have enough humility when you see a trigger, do not think you can white knuckle it or beat it alone. That, that's when I reach out to people in my network. I'm like, here's where I'm at. Here's what's going on. I know this is a red flag. Let's yeah. help me walk through this. Yeah. Yeah. How, how long was it before you were able to comfortably be around people that were drinking? like be in a social situation probably year five four or five yeah that's about right that's 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 about it for me too that's yeah you Did know you, I, go ahead you know i i, I kind of titrated my way there you know year two i could i could go out to dinner with my wife to a, a restaurant to serve booze and she could have a glass of wine and it wasn't a trigger so right. it was kind of a tight titration right. process but i'd say year four or five before i was just not super hyper vigilant yeah yeah that's about it with me i wasn't too yeah yeah that's a, that's a good way to put it too yeah um did you ever, did you you ever accidentally drink yes yeah do, do you remember when i called you that time in britain yeah <laughs> So we're at UK offices and we're celebrating something. It must've been after the Olympics or something. And, and Neil's DeVos, the CEO brings out this, they started serving uh, what I thought was orange juice. And I take a flute of this thing and I was thirsty and I rock it back this one. And, oh, then I rock it back another. And then I go, Holy shit. <laughs> there was like, it was Britain, man. Right. Like, you know, that's the, it, you, it, you know, it's called a mimosa. Yeah, 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 exactly, exactly. Which and I uh, and I was like, holy fuck! And my my heart started pounding. I was like, fucking freaked right out, right? Like I was, I was really and like, and that had never happened. Like I had never gotten into that situation, and you weren't there. You were somewhere else. And I remember you must have been in London because this was in Birmingham. And I uh, and I took off. I found a room in the UK offices. I shut the door. I. I, I sat down. I was like, I was fucking shaking. Like, and, and it, what I, I didn't even feel anything. I was just like, I don't know why, because I mean, dude, I was like, this would have been 2012. So I was like, what, 14 years sober at that point. And uh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. And, um, and I remember calling you and, and I was like, shit, dude, I think I just drank. <laughs> In fact, I know I just drank and you were like, well, 
are you all right? I was like, yeah. And, and you go, well, are you, you're not going to have another one, right? I was like, no, you know, okay. I think you're okay. <laughs> what happened to you? Uh, well, like I said, in social settings, I'd always have club soda with lime or tonic water with lime. And, you know, I was at dinner with the wife and ordered a tonic water with lime and was in conversation. They delivered it and I slammed half of it. And I was like, uh, this is a gin and tonic. This is a tonic. Water. Oh, my God. Fuck. I love gin. Yeah, me too. Uh, that was my that was my that well, my, was my. Yeah, go my, ahead. My sponsor, he, he said, you know, he worked in a, a rehab hospital clinic setting. And he said that most of the people he encountered hit their bottom on heavy gin binges. Really? Wow. That was his trend analysis. Wow. Wow. Well, my, that... mom, my mom drank herself to death with gin. You know, that was her uh, booze of choice. Oh, my God. Well, see, the thing with gin, right, is that like I, that makes her I'd never heard that, but that makes perfect sense to me because I use gin as a it was like it was like Coke for me. Right. It was like at the end of the night, near the end of the night, when I started slowing down and I was starting to get I would just I'd start drinking gin and tonic and then I could go all night. I could yeah. I could just go all fucking night on gin and and it. But oh, my God, it's as bad as tequila like in terms of you know what what was coming next right like the next day but yeah so yeah i and you know i mean for me too like i just couldn't handle hangovers too i mean i mean there was like i mean i could handle them i did a very good job of white knuckling it i never was never late i was never you know always made it to work on time i was i wasn't in the greatest emotional condition <laughs> let's put it that way right but you know i was always able to white knuckle it through a hangover but at the end of the day that was a big factor in me getting sober too i mean it, was, it wasn't the factor but i was like god it, it you know it was like i see people i run into guys now that are hung over and i'm just i'm just it's like thank god i don't have to deal with that anymore matt because i just you know, I mean, I had like, I had a huge tolerance. Like it was like, yeah, I, I don't even want to get into it, but it was so, but, and that sounds, you know, that all sounds very cool, but it wasn't because I would, I would, I was a wreck the next day, shaking, sweating, you know, all that, all that kind of shit. But anyways, um, so, you know, I mean, maybe this is too personal, but and you don't have to answer it, but I'll answer it. <laughs> but you have any any uh, regrets? Like, I mean, in terms of I mean, I have regrets. I have regrets about how I treated people when I was drinking. I also have regrets about how I treated people when I wasn't drinking. Right. You, you got you, you got any baggage that way. You must. Uh, yeah. You know, miles and miles. But. You know, at the same time, I don't think either one of us would be where we're at today without that journey. Yeah. No, so to no, me, no. it's kind of a two-sided coin. I think that's why in 12-step programs, making amends to, to deal with the guilt and the shame and the remorse, you know, such an integral part of the program. But the other side of the coin is lessons learned and skills obtained yeah. and insight and wisdom going through that journey you know that 
you know, there, there's a phrase I'm sure you're heard in meetings. It's the most expensive club in the world. <laughs> yeah, that's right. I haven't heard that in so long. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. And, and the amount of in money, every way, the, yeah. the, the amount of money I spent oh. and the physical cost and the relationship damage and so on and so forth. If you add it up, you know, it's like the national debt. Absolutely. So, you know, do you ever dig out of that debt? No, but you know, I think that's why the yeah. amends process is so important to that. And, yeah. it, and, and also linked to that is that that's a good reminder. It's like, I remember like year two, I was really, uh, one of the steps was, you know, the amends step and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, I was kind of OCD on it and I was calling people and emailing people and whatnot. And, at the end of the month, I was, I was just exhausted. I was like worn out on the amends train and all of that. And I was like, you know, step back. You know, I've only got 5,000 more to go, but <laughs> yeah. this is a pretty heavy cost. Yeah. yeah, yeah. That they don't tell you about on the front side. Yeah. You know what? I mean, when I did the steps, like next to the first three, that one is the most, to me, was the most rewarding. It was the one that it was the most powerful because when you got to, you know, you sit down with it, like I, I did all mine face to face and, uh, uh yeah, oh God, I even did one not that long ago, like years, maybe five or six years ago, I think it was with, who was it with? I, I can't remember, but I remember someone I hadn't seen. And I just, you know, even then I, I'd say, look, you know, I didn't treat you very well back then <laughs> you know i hope you can forgive me for that because you know but so then so what did you learn like what because i know what i got out of it but what did you what did what did how did how did that journey make you better at what you do and let's be specific in terms of coaching like in terms of being a better coach well i think um I think it, it enabled me to be a, a more wise counsel. Like addiction is not just alcohol or street drugs or prescription drugs. I kind of had a double addiction. I, I had workaholism and alcoholism. Mm. And so if alcohol wasn't possible or working, then workaholism worked. So yeah. 70 hour weeks, you know, traveling 50 weeks of the year, so on and so forth. So I just kind of traded addictions back and yeah. forth. So in this current culture day and age, workaholism is a real problem. Yeah. And so I think the journey helps me identify that, uh, to talk to people about that process, to make them aware that they're, they're in the grips of that process. And, it, you know, there's a lot of, quote, type addictions, you know, shop up shopaholics or porn addictions or whatnot so i think you know if most people are honest you know probably eight out of ten people you encounter in a week's time or are, are battling some kind of compulsion if you will right right and so i think it makes me a better listener and maybe a better advisor or uh, a better detector yeah yeah you've done a lot of that yeah um, 
Yeah. How, I mean, uh, it's kind of a stupid question, but how many people, like how many people do you think you've pulled off from the brink in your career? Well, first of all, I think people would be shocked how many people in elite sport are battling yeah. these kind of demons. Like it, if you if you sat in some of the meetings I've sat in, you you know people would be shocked. Like I had no idea because there's a lot of functionally functioning alcoholics or mm -hmm. drug addicts or workaholics. Mm -hmm. They you know to the outside they look like they got it all together and they're productive. You and I were both highly functional alcoholics. Totally, yeah. yeah. So to the outside it looks like everything's copacetic. You know there's no issues here. I've probably sponsored 20 or 30 coaches over the years and probably wow, many. Holy shit. Probably intervened uh, on a couple hundred athletes. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. It was part of the process. Yeah. Wow. Hey, back when you were working with Telez, right? Like who, like to me, Telez in his day was probably, I mean, he just, I don't know, maybe I got a wrong view of him, but he just seemed like a pretty upstanding straight, straight arrow, right? Like yeah. in terms of a person. So he's got this protege who's a wandering soul and fuck up, right? But is good at what he's doing. He's learning and he's seeing. So what's he thinking? Like, <laughs> like, what's he thinking when he's, you know, he's got, fuck, this guy has so much potential, but he's just a fucking, you know, like, like, what do you, have you, did you ever talk to him about that? Did you ever ask him like, no, really? No, I, I never did. But at the time, one of the coaches on the staff was, uh, we were shotgun buddies. We just kind of on each other up. And, and uh, right. this coach was probably 10 years older than me. So I probably think coach Telez thought this guy was the bad influence, influencing me wrong. Right. <laughs> But right. it was really both yeah, of us the, doing the dance, yeah. so to speak. Yeah. Um, and well, it always. I, I, I would say I wasn't like quite the flaming uh, alcoholic during my two years at Houston. I was kind of the the weekend or the Friday right. after practice it well. kind of right. guy. Yeah, you could hold it together. Yeah, yeah I, and I would yeah. have never drank on a team trip or a team setting. I was too afraid of Coach Telez to. Oh my God. Yeah. Wow. Okay. No, I, can, I can't say that I would, but I was very good at running away and keeping it very good at keeping it under wraps. Yeah. Just well, you Go know, ahead. I, I kind of had a, the disorder. I, I, I had a, a sprinter's mindset when I started drinking, but with a marathon paradigm driving the bus. So yeah. If I went out, it, 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 it was forever until yeah. the end. So I, I knew on a road trip with Coach Telez, like that wasn't an option. Right. Before. No, I, I hear you. I was, I, yeah, that's funny you say that because now I think about it, I was like that too. I used to have a switch that would go off. It didn't always go off. Like every time I drank, I drank until, you know, I mean, it wasn't until total obliteration, but it was bad all the time. But Every once in a while, I would sit down, start drinking, and a switch would go right after, and that's, and I would start, I would start ordering chasers, right? Like I would do a pint with a whiskey chaser, and I would literally sit there, and I remember was making a conscious decision, sitting there and going, 
and I'm by myself, right? I'm, I'm not, I'm drinking by myself. This is me, you know, at like six o'clock in the afternoon after practice or whatever on the way home. And I'd be like, okay, let's see where this can go. Let's, let's just, let's just, let's just not worry about anything. I got enough, I got enough credit on the card, right? And let's just see how far I can take this. And I would do that. And I would just like, oh my God, those were horrible, horrible endings, right? Like just, ugh. yeah. But um, anyways, um, thanks. <laughs> but um, back to the, back to the thing about you were saying um, about, you know, like, what did you learn from it? So for me, and I'm not going to keep you too much longer. And I, dude, I so appreciate you doing this. This is really good. But for me, what I learned, I mean, I learned so much, right? Obviously. But the one thing that really helped me with coaching is when I got sober, it was the first time ever that I started doing this, which is I'm pointing a finger at my own, at myself, as opposed to doing this, pointing the finger away. Right. And I had to like, be honest right? Like to, you know, because you don't get sober unless you're honest with yourself. You have to be, you have to start by saying, okay, look, this is, there's no question. This is a problem, right? I can't deny it anymore. I can't make excuses. I can't, you know, I can't fucking talk my way out of it. It's, you know, it's okay. So you start there and I found, you know, and then I get sober and I found that I learned to de develop that taught me um, a style of objectivity that I was able to carry into coaching big time. Right. Which is like, and I, and I'm, I mean, this may sound ridiculous, but I'm even at a technical level, right? Like, you know, I would be like, if an athlete ill performed, I wouldn't point fingers at everybody else. Right. I would, I mean, sometimes you would, if it, if it was warranted, but I see that all the time in coaching now, right. Every, the moment something doesn't go right it's the athlete's fault, right? Or it's this fault. It's never your fault as the coach. You did everything, you know, and I learned maybe I, maybe, you know, I shouldn't, I don't know, but shouldn't do it as much, but I learned that that was um, for me, that was the big, big gift in terms of my coaching that I got was I was able to be, to be objective, look at things and say, okay, no, this is your fuck up, man. You fucked this up. Not, not, not them. You can go blame them, but you know, deep down who's at fault here. Right. So. Yeah. I think in the journey to sobriety, it's, uh, it's an example of extreme ownership. Like you got to own it. Right. If you're going to be successful and then that should color everything that you do this, this paradigm of ownership. Like, you know, is this my stuff or is this your stuff? I think it changes your perspective grid on how you look at things. And, you know, I think the term is extreme ownership. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah, exactly. That's a good way to put it. Yeah, for sure. For sure. Well, you got anything else you want to talk about? <laughs> no. <laughs> well, a little, bit a little bit different podcast than I'm uh, normally. I know. I, and I appreciate you doing it. I think people, I mean, I just, you know, honestly, like for everything you've done for people, right for coaches and the sport and me and I, you know me in particular obviously i mean 
you're a big, big part of me. Well, me being here, there's no question. I've never properly thanked you for that. At least not, you know, you and I also have this weird thing in our relationship where we actually don't talk about this type of stuff. We've always done it over email. We've, we've, we've had the talks and crises and stuff like that, but this is, I, I just want people to know this is a, this is, I want people to understand what a big deal this is for, for, uh, well, I don't know. About, well, for me anyways, but I, I don't know about you, but you know, for us to, to come out and, you know, just sort of have this conversation in public. Right. Because, you know, I mean, I remember once asking you about it. somebody asked me to tell my story and I asked you, and you said, oh, you know, it's a pretty personal thing between us. Uh, it wasn't, it had nothing to do with you, but you said what we go through is a pretty personal thing. Right. And I was like, yeah, maybe I, and I didn't do it. I didn't do it. Um, but, uh, you know, I mean, you've, you know, anyways, uh, I want to thank you for everything that you've done for me, for everybody else. I think, the sport, the track gods, thank your sponsor for getting you sober because you wouldn't be here, right? Like legit, bona fide. Yeah, yeah, same here. I, I know I wouldn't be here. I, I, I think I probably had another week and then it would have been, you know. No, so. I always had this premonition I wouldn't make it much past 30 or 35. And yeah, uh, it was 40 for me. Mm hmm. <laughs> The the Grim Reaper was knocking on my door when I hit bottom for sure. Yeah, yeah, same. Well, on that note, thanks for doing this, Dan. I hope people get a lot out of it. And uh yeah, yeah. Well, keep on keep on rocking, brother. I love you. Yeah, well, thanks right. because uh you remind me often, like uh if I'm starting to shift a little bit, you know, I just think back to the Derek stories and I'm like, okay, yeah, yeah. We, yeah. We, recenter yeah yeah i you and i are as my friend rocco who is a friend of mine in sobriety said you and i are two good examples of a bad example <laughs> yeah all right that's it all right